again and uh, share with you what our church has been going through over in Silver Springs Faith Baptist Church. We've been working as a church through the five books of Moses, and you now see how far we've gotten. Because tomorrow, uh, not tomorrow, tonight's message will be the last message I've preached on this subject. I don't have any more written yet uh, on this book, so that'll be my uh, my church's uh, sermon next Sunday morning. Let's take our Bibles, Leviticus chapter 10. And as your pastor said, Leviticus is, and that's a great analogy, the fly th- flyover book, you know. Uh, I called it the tombstone of many a Bible reading plan. You know, you get your Bible reading plan in January, you start going through Genesis, and you know, there's all these great stories of creation, and Noah's Ark, and, and Joseph, and, and then you get to Exodus, and it's like, man, it's, that's an awesome story. You have, uh, you know, Moses, and the ten plagues, and the Red Sea, and you get to the end of Exodus, and you you got to weather through some law, but but you know then there's the golden calf, so it's still exciting. And then Leviticus, and then next thing you know, it's November, and you're still not touched Leviticus. You know, it's, it's it is that book. It can be an intimidating book, but it is a rich book. It's a powerful book. We're in Leviticus 10. I'll read in just a moment, but let me review uh, just so everybody's on the same page because I know there are folks that are here that weren't here Sunday morning and weren't here last Sunday night. So what is the book Leviticus? The book Leviticus, though most of us look at it like it's um, just this list of do's and don'ts and what you can eat and what not to eat and, and just the things for the priest, the book Leviticus is actually a narrative. It's a story. It is the story of Israel coming out of the land of Egypt and heading to the promised land. This just happens to be one stop along the way. It picks up where Exodus closes. So in the story of the Exodus, God calls his people out of bondage in Egypt. He sends Moses uh, through the hand, uh, through um, using Moses. God does these amazing miracles and judges Egypt with a mighty hand, brings Israel through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, to the foot of Mount Sinai. There at Mount Sinai, God enters a covenant with his people. And that's a powerfully important word in Scripture, the word covenant. It's a legally binding agreement between two parties. If you've not written that down somewhere in your Bible, write that down. A covenant is a legally binding agreement between two parties. We still use covenants today. It's called marriage. You know, when I married my wife, you know, preaching the sermon for me right there, you know. But when I married my wife, we stood in a church and we made a covenant. So long as, you know, until death do us part, we're going to be married. That is, that is what we do. It's this legally binding agreement between two parties. God enters a covenant relationship with Israel. He gives them the terms for the covenant, the terms for the agreement, uh, in the form of the Mosaic Law, 613 commandments that are the terms of the agreement. Uh, for us today, you know, again, that's a familiar term, but it's a term that none of us actually pay attention to. It's kind of when you open up software and you're installing a new program on your computer and you get to that end where this little box says, I've read and agree with all the terms and agreements. Like, how many of you just click it and, and enter it and don't even read it one bit, right? That's kind of what 
God gave Israel, but it was a lot more important. This is the law. But Israel fails at the covenant. As Moses is going up and and getting the terms of the covenant on the, the tablets of stone, Israel gets impatient. And even after they'd seen the miracles of Egypt, they'd crossed the Red Sea, they'd been eating on manna and quail, supernaturally provided to them by God, even after the thunders and the fire from the, on the mountain and the very voice of God giving them the Ten Commandments, Israel still makes a golden calf. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Moses comes down. It gives, we have probably the most incredible line of Scripture, if you were a parent, <laughs> that, you, that you will ever read, where Moses asks Aaron, Aaron, what is the deal with this calf? And Aaron's words in, in, my, in our modern English are, I don't know. I put in the gold and out popped this calf. It just, it, just, it just happened. I don't know how that worked. Israel repents. Moses makes this, uh, uh, this prayer of intercession before God. God forgives Israel, and then God gives instructions to build this thing called the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. It was to be the building, the place where Israel would get to meet with God. It was a two-room tent. The first room is called the holy place. The second room is called the most holy or the holy of holies. And the outside of the tent is wrapped in this curtained wall that makes a court. So you have like three levels to the tabernacle. You have the court, you have the holy place, you have the most holy place. When the tabernacle is constructed, everything's ready to go. God comes down off the mountain and his presence fills the tabernacle. It's a wonderful moment. It's an exciting moment. But Leviticus picks up where Exodus leaves off, where Moses even is not allowed to enter into the tabernacle. And that's the dilemma. You know, Israel has the place to meet with God, but because God is there, Israel can't yet meet with God. And the book of Leviticus is how to fix that dilemma. That's the entire book of Leviticus. As we looked at last week, we saw an overview of the book Sunday morning. Sunday night, we saw these offerings, these things that were given before God, either to say, I'm sorry, an atonement, or there are offerings that were given at the tabernacle simply to say, God, you're good. You're great. Thank you. The peace offerings or the grain offerings. Well, Moses receives these instructions on how to uh, give these offerings, and, and now it's time to ordain the people who will offer the offerings. These are the priests. And we'll get to how that all plays down, but let's, let's kind of jump ahead in the story to Leviticus chapter 10, and, and picking up in verse number 1, the Bible says this, And, and Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer. Now, if you don't know what a censer is, think of like a little metal pan with, with a rope that you know hangs down or a chain that hangs down and you'd put incense on it and you burn it. And if you've ever seen maybe a, a comic strip or you know some cartoon of, of some priest you know, carrying this little bowl with, with smoke coming off, that's, that's what it is. It's, it's a censer. So each of them took this little bowl with a chain coming off and, and they, the Bible says they 
offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And the fire went out, sorry, and there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them. And they died before the Lord. And Moses and Aaron, uh, Moses said unto Aaron, sorry, this is that that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me. And before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphon, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said unto them, Come near, carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. So they went near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. Moses said unto Aaron and unto Eleazar and unto Ithamar, his sons, Uncover not your heads, neither rend your clothes, lest ye die, unless wrath come upon all the people. But let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord hath kindled. And ye shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. Father, help me now as I teach your word. I pray to be a blessing to your people that are here in this church. Lord, Teach us something from this book that we so often ignore. Give us something that's not new. It's been here before all of us this whole time. But maybe it's the first time we see it. Maybe it's the first time we pay attention to it. Lord, instruct us. Lord, there are some here that need encouraging. There are some here that need challenging. There are some here that need convicting. And I, in my strength alone, cannot do that. But Holy Spirit, I'm just asking that you would do the work that you intend to do in this congregation. These are your people. I'm, I'm a man stepping into another man's labor, opening up your word to give to them. Lord, fill me with the Holy Spirit as I teach, and I pray that it be spirit-filled hearers in the pew as well. We ask these things in your name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we have this review that I gave, that everything was set up. I mean, it was going to be this wonderful moment. God could finally have this relationship with his covenant people. Uh, I mean, it was supposed to be paradise on earth. But if the tabernacle, the meeting place was supposed to be paradise on earth, why do we have this drastic story in Leviticus chapter 10? I mean, let's put the story together. Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, for whatever reason, and we'll get into it, they decide, hey, you know what? Let's let's do an act of worship before God. Let's you and I, we're each going to get a censer, and we're going to put fire on it. And the Bible calls it strange fire. It doesn't quite explain what what that means, but that's that's just what it calls it. And then they go in, and they're going to offer this censer, this incense before the Lord, And God kills them. God judges them right then and there. Why? Well, to understand Leviticus chapter 10, we have to go back seven days and a few chapters. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 8. Again, Israel has completed the tabernacle. 
The place where God is going to meet with his people is, is finished. The presence of God is there. It's like this heavenly thumbs up, like, hey, you guys did what I asked you to do. Good job. Moses has been given the offerings on, on, uh, that Israel is supposed to bring so that they can offer before the Lord for, in, uh, for atonement, and they can come before God's presence. And now it's time to finally set up the guys that are going to offer it, the priests. It's time to put them to action. In Leviticus 8, verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with them, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and a bullock for the sin offering, and two rams, and a basket of unleavened bread. Gather thou all the congregation together, under the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. And the assembly was gathered together under the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Moses said unto the congregation, This is the thing which the Lord commanded to be done. And so now Moses, he begins with the consecration of the priest. And to just kind of sum up for, for length of time here what goes on in this chapter, it begins with an anointing of oil. And that, that was mentioned in verse 1. Back in the book of Exodus, God gives a recipe for a special anointing oil. It was only to be used in the tabernacle. Nowhere else could it be used. It was special. It was for the purpose of setting things aside. So you put this oil on it, and that designated it as this is God's. Do I have, how many contractors, how many builders do I have here? You get to a job site. You're there. You have your tools. And you're surrounded by other people with probably the same tools. So what did you do, some of you, with your tools? You may have taken a can of blue spray paint or some electrical tape and wrapped your tools or painted your tools. Because at the end of the day, the last thing you want is for that cheapo uh, other guy who came on the job site to snatch your tools. You, in a sense, anointed your hammer with the blue paint that says, this is mine, nobody else gets to take it home. Does that make sense? And we, we fall in there. That's what this anointing oil did with the priests. It was a way of, of Israel saying, this is God's. Nobody else gets to take it home. It belongs to him. So Moses anoints Aaron and anoints his sons with this special oil. It's a fragrant oil. It's a costly oil. It was a valuable oil. But then after the priests are anointed, they're designated, they're set aside, then a sacrifice is made. Actually, three sacrifices are made. We see a bull for a sin offering. And if you were here Sunday night, you remember what the sin offering was. It was for unintentional sin. When you, when you did wrong, but you didn't mean to do it, or you didn't know that you'd done it. That was what was offered. And for the priest, the requirement was a bull. So they're just doing what God told them to do. Then we see this next offering is a ram for a burnt offering. That was Kind of like the baseline offering. It was offered for just about anything. An animal is killed. Its blood is put on the altar. The whole thing is burnt up. Those are, if you were here last Sunday night, those are things we've already covered. But then we have a third ram that's brought just for a special offering, this one time only, for, a spe for what I'm going to call a consecration offering. And they take this ram and it, it, it is killed and and Moses takes the blood of the ram and he puts it on the ear of the priest, you know, the lobe of the priest's right ear and the thumb of their right hand and, and the big toe of their right foot. Kind of weird by our standards, kind of gross. 
but it had some symbolism to it. It meant that the priest's ears were for hearing God's word, and his hands and feet were for accomplishing those things. It was a special symbolism before all of Israel that these guys, they're being put aside for a special job, a holy calling. You know, if, we, if you grew up in Sunday school, there was a song that you would have sung uh, as a child that, that brings this passage to mind. It went like this. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. Why? For the Father up above, He's looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. You know, in this case with the priest, says, oh, be careful, little priest, what you hear. Be careful, you know, what you do with your hands, and be careful what you do with your feet. It was a challenge to them, a reminder that they were for serving the Lord. They were holy. They were consecrated. They were put aside. Then, in this consecration ceremony, after uh, they're anointed with oil, after their uh, offerings are, are, are sent up before the Lord, after they have their uh, ear and thumb and, and, and toe put aside, they have a holy camping trip. They spend the next seven days at the door of the tabernacle. They're not to leave the door of the tabernacle. They're not to go anywhere else because they, again, are being set aside for the work of God. And just in case they go out and do something they're not supposed to do, this is, this is protective. You know, this is, this is to guard them in, in their calling. Now, a phrase that's repeated over and over and over throughout Leviticus chapter 8 is, as the Lord commanded Moses. In fact, you find it seven times repeated, as the Lord commanded Moses, as the Lord commanded Moses. It was done, uh, in, as we read in verse um, 5, this is the thing which the Lord commanded to be done. Uh, you know, All this instruction is given over and over and over. Chapter 8 closes, so Aaron and his sons did all the things which the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. So with the priest being anointed and, and consecrated, all the things that God had instructed Moses and Aaron to do, they did. They put high priority in following God's commands. They'd already screwed up before. They weren't going to make the same mistake again. They were going to obey. They were going to trust that what God was saying was right and follow Him. And in chapter 9 of Leviticus, we have the grand opening service of their tabernacle. It came to pass on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons, in verse 1 of chapter 9, and the elders of Israel. And he said unto Aaron, Take thee a young calf for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And unto the children of Israel thou shalt speak, saying, Take ye a kid of the goats for a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both of the first year, without blemish, for a burnt offering, also a bullock and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord, and a meat offering mingled with oil. For today the Lord will appear unto you. So they do it, just what God commanded. They have this special grand opening service. We've got the priests, the guys that are going to do the offerings. We've got the instruction for the offerings. And so the work is being done. The offerings are made, and, and in chapter uh, 9, verse 22, And Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people, and blessed them, and came down from offering of the sin offering, and the burnt offering, and the peace offerings. 
And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of the congregation and came out and blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. And there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which when all the people saw, they shouted and fell on their faces. Let's try to put ourselves all the way back in the Sinai Peninsula, those thousands of years ago, for this grand opening service of the tabernacle. I mean, you've heard Moses talking about how Aaron's going to be anointed. We're just Joe Schmo Israelites standing in the back, watching this whole thing go down. We, we watch the elders, which, you know, they're the, they're the leaders. They're the, the judges of Israel. And they're bringing offerings on our behalf. And, and Aaron and his sons, they, they offer them. And then God does another heavenly thumbs up. He sends fire out from, outside the tabern- uh, from inside the tabernacle and it consumes our offering. It's like God saying, good job guys, I'm accepting it, I'm going to take it. And the Bible tells us all the people of Israel, they fell on their faces, they shouted. It was a moment of both fear and wonderment. The entire nation is worshiping God as he is saying, well done. Good job. I'm proud of you. Talk about an electrifying moment. and A moment with great anticipation and build up, and it really paid off. Then we have Leviticus 10. After so much attention was placed on doing what God instructed. Just what God commanded. Obeying as God instructed Moses. Obeying as God instructed Aaron. All these things that God had told them to do. Then Nadab and Abihu get in their mind, hey, let's do it our way. How about we go in? You know, God didn't tell us to do this censor thing, but I'm sure he won't care if we just do our own thing. We're going to take our censor. And we're going to take our fire. And we're going to come in to the holy place and offer before the Lord, which He has not instructed us to do. And that's what brings judgment. And that's what brings destruction. And as Aaron stands there, no doubt dumbfounded by the whole thing, Moses says to him, This is that the Lord commanded, or the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me. And before all the people, I will be glorified. The theme of the book Leviticus, as I said last week, is the theme of holiness. God is absolutely holy. Last week I called it God's chief attribute. Not that anything else about God and His character is not important, but this is an attribute about God that is emphasized in ways that other attributes are not. What does it mean that God is holy? It means that God is absolutely morally perfect. He stands 
alone in all of creation for his holiness, for his perfection, for his righteousness. And nothing that is tainted, nothing that is sinful, nothing that is immoral can exist in the presence of God's holiness. It's not that God is some vindictive, nasty bully. It's just the nature of who he is. It's like how light, you know, how darkness cannot exist in the presence of light. You come into a dark room, you flip a switch on, the darkness immediately fades because that's the nature of light. It cleanses, it purifies, it, it, it makes the whole room, uh, you know, exposed for what it truly is. And this is what the holiness of God is in the midst of his people. Last week I gave the illustration that, uh, you know, using the sun to help us understand this holy aspect of God. God dwelling in the midst of Israel was both a thing that brought blessing and sustenance and God's goodness. But at the same time, God dwelling in the midst of his people was something that was, in a sense, dangerous. So also we use the illustration of the sun. You know, the sun is a good thing. It brings life. It brings blessing. It's, you know, it, it plants photosynthesize its energy and we get to eat the plants and we get to th- eat the things that eat the plants and you know, we get to enjoy all the warmth and the blessings that the sun brings. But at the same time, if we do not respect the destructive nature of the sun, we, we are very quickly reminded. You go out and you have a propensity to get sunburned and you don't put on sunblock. You just say, eh, be all right. The next day you look like um, red lobster. You know, <laughs> this is kind of what you look like. You know, we forget those things. It's, it's like how uh, astronauts, they go into outer space and they have all this protective clothing, part of it being because there's radiation coming from the sun. So the sun, which is a source of life and blessing and goodness, is also something that's very dangerous. So also God dwelling in the midst of Israel was a source of blessing and sustenance and life and goodness. And if they would just respect that, if they would just trust God, if they would just put faith in the things that God had told them, that then they would experience God's blessing. If they would be holy people like God is holy, then they could live with the benefits and not have to face the danger. I compared Leviticus to spiritual sunblock, the instructions of it rather, because it gave Israel this this ability to live in God's presence without being destroyed because they had God's word. The issue is when they ignored it. And that's what we have here. When they disobeyed, when they, when, when they rejected what God said, when they decided to do their own thing. And this is all the more emphasized in this story because the priests were going to be held to a higher standard. If you remember last Sunday night, I talked about the uh, offerings and the, the, the sin offering. The, the ones that had to offer the most for the sin offering was the priests. Then it would be the leaders, they could offer you know, a smaller animal and it went down the list to where if you were a poor person in Israel and you couldn't even afford two turtle doves, you could bring a sack of flour. See, these, these priests, these servants of God, these men who were to represent God were to be held at a high standard of holiness. In fact, 
If we pick up, and I'm going to speak more on these verses tonight, in verse 8, And the Lord spake unto Aaron, Leviticus chapter 10, verse 8, coming in verse 9, He said, Do not drink wine nor strong drink, thou nor thy sons with thee, when you go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations, that ye may put difference between holy and unholy, between unclean and clean, that ye may teach Israel all the statutes which the Lord hath spoken unto them by the hand of Moses. So the priests were to be held at a high standard because they would have the role of instructing others. They would have the role of distinguishing between what was holy and what was unholy, what was clean and what was unclean. Again, I'll go into those more in detail tonight. But they would be held at a high standard because it was them that were to be the models for the rest of the nation to follow. In a very real sense, the way they lived was to represent and to point others toward God whom they served. It was a big responsibility. That's what it meant to be priests. Now, perhaps you're here and you say, all right, who cares? We don't have priests anymore. Uh, this morning I was leaving uh, my church. We were setting some things up with, their sa- with the sound system there. Uh, I was, uh, they were getting ready for Sunday school. I was getting in my van and, and somebody was coming in late and we were talking about this book, Leviticus. And, and uh, you know, he said the priests, those that still practice the priesthood, they're stuck in the Old Testament. We don't have a system where we're going to a man who will go to God on our behalf. And that's true. This is no longer the case. So how then does this all tie into the New Testament? Why does it matter to the church in 2023? Well, as Baptists, we preach and teach what we call the doctrine of the priesthood of every believer. Not that you know we're necessarily set up where you know Brother Rick Lynn comes to Brother Andrew Montgomery and confesses his sin, and I go to God on his behalf, or vice versa. No. We believe that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, He fulfilled the requirements of the Old Testament law, He became our high priest, our ultimate high priest. But He's a very unique high priest because He's not just any ordinary man, though He was man. He's God's Son. So we no longer have to go through a pastor or a priest or a Levite or a leader to get to God. We can go straight to the very Son of God when we have a need, when we have a prayer, when we have to confess, when we have to get something right. We have this ability through Jesus Christ, this access to the Lord Himself. Now, as I said last week, the writer of Hebrews, he speaks of uh, the... Old Testament being the shadow of the good things to come. He calls Jesus the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. It says in Hebrews chapter 9, Verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. In Hebrews 9 verse 6, he says, Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. In the same chapter, verses 8 and 9, Hebrews 9, 8 and 9, it says, The Holy Ghost, this signifying, 
that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, well, as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices. But notice what it says here, that these gifts could not make him that did the service perfect as pertained to the conscience. But in Hebrews 9.11, But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered into the whole, uh, once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Through the finished work of Jesus Christ, each and every one of us has direct access to God, just as the priests had. In fact, Peter says in his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-5, through 5, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby, if so be that ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. See, the Old Testament priests, they offered blood of bulls and goats and, and, and wafers and everything else. They offered these tangible things, but they were just pictures of what the church would be. We have a high priest, Jesus Christ, and we are called to offer spiritual sacrifices. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, he says, um, let's go there because I don't have it in my notes, but I want to make sure we, we, we quote it well. Romans chapter 12. In 12 verse 1, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. He says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Just as the priests in the Old Testament were held to this high standard, just as the priests were given this great expectation because they represented Christ, they represent the Lord. As they walked amongst the people of Israel, not that they were better in and of themselves, but they served a great God. And that affected the way they lived. It affected what they ate, where they went, what they touched. Everything about their lives was drastically impacted by the very fact that they were set apart to serve God. But as we've read from Peter, and as we've read from Paul, so also are we. Now, praise the Lord, we are no longer held to the same expectation of Nadab and Abihu. 
If you were to come in the church t- uh, today with a censer and, and uh, you know, incense burning on that, we wouldn't have fire bursting from the pulpit and you know, bringing you to ash. You might have a few people uh, rushing to try and put the fire out before you burn the building down, but that's about it. Yet the emphasis is still there. As we, the church, are here on this planet, we represent the Lord Jesus Christ. We are called to be holy. We are called to be set aside. We are called to be different. Not smug. Not jerks for Jesus. we got enough Christians that are like that. But we are called to be different. Let's go to one more passage of Scripture. I know I'm out of time, so I need to be done. Let's go to Galatians. There in the New Testament, First and Second Corinthians and Galatians. Notice in Galatians, and in, in chapter five, in verse number thirteen, he says, "For brethren, you've been called unto liberty." Praise God, we are free in Christ. There are things that we are given that are liberty. We're not held to the old law. We're not bound by the old sacrificial system. We don't have to do all the things that are, you know, all the 613 commandments that are given to Israel uh, in the books of Moses. We've been given freedom. But Paul, uh, Paul to the Galatian churches says, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, since we're not called to use our liberty as an occasion to the flesh, he says, walk in the spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And he describes what that looks like. He says the flesh uh, lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. To walk in the spirit, he says in verse 18, is to be led of the spirit. He says if you're led of the spirit, you're not under the law. And he says in verse 19, now let me, let me explain to you the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh are manifest. They're clear. They're seen by all. This is what the flesh leads to. This is what the flesh does. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, which is with no moral boundary, unbridled in our, in our, in our sin. He says the works of the flesh are idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, that's the strife, that's fighting, uh, emulation, uh, you know, a similar word there, you know, jealousy, wrath, strife, seditions, it's divisions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, reveling, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I've told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So if we are to be models to the world of the God that we serve, just like the priests were to be models to Israel to put that distinction between what was holy and unholy and clean and unclean. If we are to serve a similar role, then these works of the flesh, they ought not be a part of our lives. 
Paul says to the Ephesians, uh, he said, let these things not be even so much as named among you. It's not becoming the saints. It's not right for the church to live in these ways. Now, it's an, you know, interesting to me, Brother Lynn, there are things in this list that are, we you know, think of the, the, the outward, you know, really you know, bad sins, fornication, adultery, you know, those things. But it's amazing, half that list is stop fussing with each other. Did you catch that? Stop fighting. Stop being jealous and envious. Stop trying to tear each other down. Live with love towards your neighbor. I mean, the, the, that's, that's very basic Christian life type things. He gives the opposite, the fruit of the Spirit. These are the results of being led by the Spirit. That's the idea of fruit. Paul uses this analogy. Uh, Jesus used the same in his, in his teachings, the parables, the idea of fruit. You know, if, uh, in my backyard, I have two apple trees. You know how I know they're apple trees? I didn't plant them. They were here before I got there. I know they're apple trees because if things go well and we don't have a ridiculously late frost... I get apples, because it's just the nature of the apple tree. Paul says here, if you walk in the Spirit, this is the nature, this is the fruit, this is just the result. This is what it looks like to walk in the Spirit. What are the things that are the walking in the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, that's patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, Temperance and self-control. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the, affection, with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. As I close here, we talk about this thing of holiness. And, and the, uh, the priests were holy, so also should church be holy. We sometimes get the wrong idea of holiness. We think, you know, well, if that person wears the right size tie, they're holy. I can remember being in Bible college, and I can hear, I remember preachers coming through and preaching against wearing, you know, skinnier ties than this, and if you wore a skinny tie, you were worldly. That's not in the scripture, folks. You know what it looks like to be holy? The fruit of the Spirit. Why don't we see that more often in churches? If that's what it means to be the New Testament, you know, Equivalent. I'm gonna be careful. I use that word because I don't want to give the wrong, you know, theology here. But you know, as the Old Testament pictures the New the, the, the New Testament truths here, if if it, what it means to be the New Testament equivalent of of living holy like the priests, so put it that way, and that's the fruit of the Spirit. Why don't we see the fruit of the Spirit more often in churches? It means we're failing. It means we're being a bunch of nadabs and abihus. We're bringing our own strange fire of you know, preferences, of pride, of gospel smugness. We're bringing our own strange fire of arrogance. Bringing our own strange fire of, I can't you know, stand this other person that goes to the same church as me, so I'm going to sit on the other side of the room. And I'm, I'm not saying that's what's going on here, but you know, <laughs> it happens. I can think of, as a pastor, we had uh, some folks come to our church years ago where they would sit on diametrically opposite sides of the room. They'd come in, whichever one came in first would find a seat, and then the other one would see where they were sitting, and they would sit on the other side of the room. 
That's strange fire. Go figure we're losing the job of reaching the world. Because they look at the church and say, I don't want anything to do with that. I mean, if I wanted that, I just would hang out on Facebook. I'd camp out on Twitter. Like I have nothing, the church has nothing to offer when we live like the world lives. When we offer our strange fire. Let's give these spiritual sacrifices that God speaks of. Let's give our lives. Let's give our very selves to say, God, I will be led by your spirit and what your spirit leads, I will obey. We ought to know God's word. You know, the spirit will never lead contrary to his word. There's a, yeah, and I'm out of time, but there, it, biblical illiteracy is, is killing our churches. So I've got to ask you, what are you offering God today? I'm not saying that anyone here is perfect. I'm not. I certainly am not. But I am challenging each and every one of us to search our own hearts, and search our own lives, and determine what is it I'm bringing to God day by day. The life that I live, am I giving Him the works of the flesh? Or am I bringing that through the Spirit? Am I giving Him my strange fire? Or am I simply allowing Him to work in me the life He wants me to live? What is it today? Stand together, heads are bowed, eyes are closed.